0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 75 Classic Period Maya could be described as the backbone of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican history, as its longevity and geography positions it at the centre of everything. Millions of ethnically Mayan people still live in Central America today, and their roots can be traced back to the pre-Columbian ancient Mayans but they can also be traced back to some of the earliest known civilizations of Mesoamerica too. So let's begin this week by creating a timeline and a geographical placement for these people. Our first archeological site to visit this week is called Cuello. Cuello is just over the border from Mexico in the modern country of Belize and in particular It is in the Orange Walk district. The site has been worked on since the 1970s and a small nine-step pyramid was uncovered which was clearly very old compared to many other finds. This was in the heart of traditional Mayan territory but it must have been older than other Mayan sites. The questions would be how old it would be and who built it. Aspects of the site do point towards an early or proto-Mayan culture, but dating this site has proved difficult with ages from around 3,500 to 4,500 years ago being offered. This would have been well over a 1,000 years before the age of the classic Mayans, who are the subject of this week's episode. The classic Mayan period began in around the year 250, So anything before this period can be described as pre-classic, with the site at Cuello representing one of the earliest of all pre-classic Mayan sites. The location near the Mexican border of Belize is somewhat central for the Mayan culture. All of the extreme south of Mexico, and particularly the whole of the Yucatan Peninsula, is historically Mayan. As well as the modern countries of Belize and also Guatemala, which are the location of the Guatemala highlands of the south and of this section of the Central American Isthmus. Mayan civilization collapsed towards the end of the first millennium at a similar time to the decline of the Zapotec and Teotihuacano civilizations. However, Mayan civilizations did re emerge going into the second millennium, and the important sites were concentrated in the north of the Yucatan Peninsula, such as Chichen Itza. This is the post classic period of Mayan civilization, and something which we will concentrate on more during volume 4. This week, we will look at the earlier Mayan sites further south, which include two that we mentioned last week namely, Tikal and Copan. If we look at some of the late pre-classic sites of the Mayan civilization, then we can suggest that there was a significant amount of power in the Mayan lands, much earlier than the classical period. But evidence of the true extent of this power is scant, and a lot of the sites have perished, either through modern building work, or just because they have worn away over time. One of the greatest pre-classic Mayan sites has to be El Mirador, in the thick rainforests of Guatemala. El Mirador dates back to the 1st millennium BCE and it was exciting for archaeologists to discover how much older this site was to many of the traditional Mayan sites of the south. We can see that the construction of the city was made along lines that consider astronomy which is typical of Mesoamerican sites as we have discovered with Monte Alban and Teotihuacan. The rainforest is so dense in this area of the world that it has almost swallowed the large pyramid at El Mirador, which is called La Danta. So dense is the rainforest that it would take explorers days to trek to the site before the advent of helicopters. When we take into account that the Ladanta Pyramid was the tallest pyramid of the ancient Americas and even remained so after the construction of the incredible pyramids at Teotihuacan, then we can also get a clear indication of how overwhelming the rainforest is. Each of the huge stone blocks may have taken a dozen men to lift and even if we consider that thousands of men were put to work to build the pyramid, the project would have still taken many years to complete. At El Mirador, we can also see plastering styles similar to the Olmecs. These early Mayans created stucco plaster friezes to decorate their buildings, and historians study the images created in these friezes for clues about the religious beliefs of these societies. The depictions within the friezes validated aspects of the recorded Mayan cosmogony, so it was quite an exciting discovery. The Mayan cosmogony was recorded by Europeans from the oral traditions of the Mayan people, and so we ultimately ended up with a script called the Popol Vuh. We have to be careful, however, because Mayan culture is a very broad term for a very broad area when we are discussing ancient times, so the Popol Vuh might have originally have been quite an isolated cosmogony. What we do know is that a pair of characters called the Hero Twins are spoken of in the Popol Vuh, and that these Hero Twins are believed to have been represented in the stucco friezes at El Mirador the pre-classic Mayan site. Mayan beliefs centered around a somewhat animistic view that the universe could be represented by a tree that contained all things created and this is not unlike the Norse model of the structure of life within the universe. This tree would connect everything real with everything spiritual, both of the earth and of the sky. There are a great number of Mayan mythological stories and we certainly don't have time to explore all of the sites. So let us now get into the Classic Period. The Classic Period A number of ritual centres existed in Mayan lands that were not completely unlike El Mirador. And as the centuries rolled by, some of these ceremonial centres would develop their power and influence and become more like city-states with an area of influence, which we have learned is quite a natural progression in that cycle of growing population, requiring greater resource gathering, requiring a growing population. These city-states would invest more into their ceremonial constructions and become increasingly aware of each other which would also require them to have a military consideration in case a neighbouring city-state wanted to steal their resources or curb their expansion. Due to the geographical conditions of the area, it is quite unlikely that the ceremonial centres would have been able to sustain a large population itself and it was more likely that people stayed in their outlying villages and travelled to the ceremonial centres to invest their manpower into the construction projects such as the pyramid temples. This is because this was a land of dense rainforest with high levels of rainfall and temperate conditions that would make this a steamy blanket of greenness across the landscape. It is likely that the residents of these outlying villages were using the slash and burn agricultural techniques that involved clearing an area to be able to cultivate the land, which is very similar to the techniques employed by the Epipaleolithic societies of the Near East on the cusp of the Neolithic Revolution. We have already mentioned one of the more significant sites of the classic Mayan lands in episode 74 when we discovered how a disparate group of warriors from the non-Mayan city of Teotihuacan led by a character called Spear Thrower took control of the city of Tikau. When El Mirador is believed to have declined Tikau is believed to have risen And this may or may not have been a coincidence. El Mirador's decline is alongside the end of the pre-classic and the rise of Tikal is alongside the rise of the classic period of Mayan history. Tikal was a significant city before the arrival of Spearthrower Al from Teotihuacan. We have glyphic scripts that indicate the history of the rulers of Tikal. And interestingly, there is also an indication of a significant female among the ruling class, if indeed the speculation that the individual called Unen Bahlam was indeed a female. If she was, she could have been the Queen of Tikal. The other thing that we can determine from the glyphic scripts of Tikal before the arrival of Spearthrower Owl is that there was significant conflict between the city-states of this area. Tikal and its surrounding city-states would have had significant populations. One source in particular states that these ancient settlements could have had twice as many residents as the largest city of the modern country of Belize, which seems quite incredible. In 378, the king of Tikal died, possibly killed in conflict with the forces of spear-thrower Al from Teotihuacan. A son of spear-thrower Al became the new king and so a change of dynasty occurred. To get a sense of the politics of this period, this is probably not the first occasion where a dynasty was overthrown by peoples of another city. So the competitive of this period is probably not unlike early classical Greece or the age of the Janapadas of ancient India. This event would usher in a period of success for Tikal, where the city's influence would spread to create a city-state that would bring other settlements into its realm. As the city's influence grew, earthwork constructions would be built for the collection of water in this area of unusually high precipitation. The water would be required for the developing need for the higher levels of agriculture. We also know from the previous episode that the city of Tikal also extended its influence southwards beyond traditional Mayan territory to the city of Copan, just inside the border of the modern country of Honduras. Tikal managed to maintain a level of control over the area around Copan until the 8th century. That's when it gained its independence. Tikal did itself still manage to remain significant after this time despite this loss. Uncovering all of the true glory of the Mayan city of Tikal is unlikely to be completed in any of our lifetimes such as the sheer amount of buildings constructed and yet to be fully excavated. Six large pyramids exist as the dominant temples of Tikal, not quite as majestic as the pyramids of Teotihuacan, but still considerable nonetheless. We can see the continuation of the talented mind creation of stucco friezes at Tikal, but there are also other fine examples of parietal art at another site called Palenque. Palenque is considerably further west than Tikal in Mexican lands and much closer to the traditional lands of the Zapotecs, who we featured in episode 73. Once again, we can see an abundance of traditional temple buildings adorned with impressive bas-reliefs. Unsurprisingly, Palenque had its own military altercations with its neighbours, particularly Calakmul, and may have even formed a brief political alliance with their distant Mayan cousins at Tikal. One thing that is common to these Mayan cities is the abundance of parietal art, whether it be the bas-reliefs of Palenque, the stucco friezes of Tikal, or the colourful frescoes of Calakmul. Buildings. It's always very interesting to study the buildings of Mesoamerican cultures. Firstly, we look for distinctions and similarities between the buildings of particular cities before looking for distinctions and similarities between the buildings of particular cultures. So, at Palenque, there is a ball court, which shouldn't surprise us considering that ball courts are a feature of Mesoamerican cultures. But if we suspect that the Olmecs of bygone millenniums were responsible for the creation of rubber ball games, then it would be natural to see that this tradition would reach Palenque, as it had also reached the Zapotec city of Monte Alban, where we also find a ball court. The Mayans obviously embraced the ball court game, as we can see that there is a ball court in the very distant location of Copan, so the tradition was widespread in Mayan lands. You can discover more about the origin of the Mesoamerican ball court game tradition in our volume 2 episode about the Olmecs. When we spoke of the non-Mayan city of Teotihuacan we referenced the fact that there may not have been a royal family and that there was simply a ruling elite instead of a traditional king. This was not the case in Mayan cities as we have lists of monarchs for the major cities and at Palenque, there exists a palace for the king which is very ornate with a very distinct four-story tower. It seems to be a building of luxury with quarters for the king's retinue of servants and even a sweat bath which worked in a similar way to a modern steam room or sauna. Water was channeled directly to the palace via an aqueduct. It is thought that this great palace was built during the reign of 7th century Ahau, called Kinich Janab Pakal. An Ahau is not necessarily a king but any important political leader of a Mayan city state. In this case, we can say that Kinich Janab Pakal was the ruler of Palenque. He is sometimes referred to popularly as Pacquiao the Great, and his reign at 68 years was the longest known reign of any monarch of any sovereign world state, up to and including the 7th century, and would remain the longest until the reign of Louis XIV of France during the 17th and 18th centuries. Pacquiao's reign was a long and important one for the city of Palenque, and we can see that the construction of many temples along with the aforementioned palace happened during this time. Mayan temples were often built in the shape of a pyramid with a flattened off top where a small roofed temple building was placed. The reason that we know what little we do know is thanks to the efforts to translate the mysterious Mayan hieroglyphs alongside depictions that have been carved into the exterior buildings including the bas-reliefs and friezes and also on the numerous stelae. We can find that over 100 stelae still exist in the city of Calakmul but a number of them have become indecipherable over time where the inscriptions have become worn out. Despite there being ethnically Mayan people still living in Central America today The Mayan hieroglyphic writing system was largely indecipherable until a large amount of effort was invested in the understanding of the system during the middle of the 20th century. The nature of Mayan hieroglyphs as a writing system is not unlike that of the ancient Egyptians with the logos or glyphs representing either words or syllables. The Mayan glyphs alongside traditional imagery in the most part tell the story of Mayan life and events. And this is why we know what little we do know so we owe a debt of thanks to those individuals who did work so hard to make sense of what we are all looking at. In regards to ritual we find it incredibly difficult to pinpoint the sacrificial activity of the pre-classic Mayans as there is a whole lot more evidence of what was going on in the post-classic. However, if we look at activity throughout Mesoamerica, such as with the Mayans' neighbouring predecessors, the Olmecs, we can be suspicious of a degree of sacrifice of both humans and animals, whether through slaughter or bloodletting, including auto-sacrifice, which in this context is self-bloodletting. Once again though, evidence is scant, and so we have to be very careful to recognise that we are making assumptions. We cannot overlook the pyramid constructions of Mayan lands when talking about their buildings and although most of the pyramids do have steps that lead to the top there is a suspicion that not all the pyramids were built to be climbed regularly as some appear to be very steep and dangerous. Temple 4 at Tikal is one of the tallest pyramids of Mesoamerica and it majestically looks over the site of Tikal and the treetops surrounding it. It is believed to have been built as a tomb shrine for the Tikal ruler Yikin Chan Kawil. A carved wooden lintel from the pyramid has been carefully preserved and describes a military victory of Yakin Chan Kawil over its neighbouring city state of El Peru in the year 743. We can feel confident about the date, mainly because of the nature of the Mayan calendar. Calendar In our episode on the Zapotecs, which was episode 73, we described their calendar, which was in the form of a 260-day ritual cycle working alongside a 365-day astronomical cycle. These two calendars were also featured in the records of the Maya, but there was also another calendar in operation called the Long Count calendar whose roots can be found in both the pre classic Mayan civilization and the Olmec civilization. The long count method was used for long term time periods that could chart time since the creation of the universe, which can interestingly be traced back to the date the eleventh of august three thousand one hundred and fourteen BCE. So effectively all counting proceeded from that very date. The creation of the universe followed on from the end of the previous universe which was actually the third attempt to create a successful universe which was ultimately not successful. So the fourth universe was created and we can follow this story in the Popol Vuh. We mentioned the Popol Vuh as the cosmogony script which was depicted in the friezes discovered at the pre-classic site of El Mirador. The hero twins in this story created man from maize. in this fourth incarnation of the universe. The calendar is constructed with regard for the dates of the new incarnations with the fourth incarnation coming at the end of the third incarnations 13th Bacton a Bacton works out to contain a total of 144,000 days and this is very interesting because if we were to assume that each universal cycle lasts for a period of 13 Bactons then the last date of the 13th Bacton of the 4th incarnation works out to be the 21st of December 2012. This actually created a wave of thought throughout the modern world that there would be an apocalyptic event in 2012 and many of us may even remember this happening. Many news programs would cover the story and ceremonies took place to mark the end of the world even at the Mayan city of Tikal itself. However It was just actually one of those things that was swept along by sensationalists because there was no evidence to suggest that each universe was born after a 13th Bacton cycle and there was no evidence to suggest that each incarnation would end in an apocalypse. So many scholars dismissed the suggestion of the end of the world and evidently we are all still here anyway. Interestingly, it seems that the Mayan long count calendar actually fell into disuse after the end of the classic period, with no evidence of its use in the post-classic. The most recent instance of the use of the long count calendar was in the early 10th century at the important Mayan city of Tonina. Rise and Fall Many Mesoamerican cultures flourished in the early centuries of the first millennium and we can look at a date of around the year 250 to see the widespread growth of classic Mayan cities and buildings. Cities would become city-states and populations would grow, with some settlements reaching tens of thousands of residents. Pyramidal temples, Plazas and ball courts would feature among the typical buildings of most of the classic Mayan sites of the Guatemala Highlands and its surrounding dense rainforest environs. With the rising power of these growing city-states came the typical interactions. Firstly there would be trade in items such as obsidian and jade but inevitably there would be conflict as city-states would fear each other's power and worked to suppress the power of those who became a threat to the fortunes of others. The cities of Tikal and Calakmul are an example of cities who were able to subjugate other cities into their realm, but there was never a case of there being a dominant ruler of all of Maya. The same relationship of trade and power would also involve the far-off city of Teotihuacan, in the northwest, very close to the modern city of Mexico City. The Teotihuacanos would enjoy a trade relationship with the Mayans, but due to Teotihuacan's considerable size and power, we have evidence of Teotihuacanos taking control of Mayan cities, such as when Spear Thrower Al seemed to dethrone the ruler of Tikal. The specific rule of each city was conducted by a ruling class of statesmen and religious priests headed by an Ahau which may have been the equivalent to a king with the succession appearing to be hereditary. The calendars of Mesoamerica and the alignments of cities and their structures demonstrated a regard for astronomy and the study and understanding of it. Scholars believe that classic Mayan cultures were quite academically advanced because of their abilities to predict eclipses, for example, and the levels of literacy demonstrated. We should feel absolutely no reason not to suppose that the creation of such things in Mayan societies, such as aligned buildings and astronomical understanding, and a writing system that can be compared to cultures such as those in the earliest societies of Egypt, Babylon and China, would not place the Mayans at a good intellectual level. Irrigation had to be conducted differently in this area of the world. For many of the cities who exploited the high level precipitation of these rainforests by collecting water for storage in reservoirs, which differs from the channeling of rivers that we can often see in other areas of the world. The owners of these reservoirs were the Ahals, who would use the water which many depended on as a means of control over their subjects growth in populations would naturally come with its own pressures as we are aware there are limits to the farming of lands with cleared agricultural fields becoming either too saline or infertile through a lack of nutrients causing problems for farming for large populations add to this the possible anomaly of a dry period during the 6th century possibly caused by a global climate change in the wake of volcanic eruptions, this we touched upon during the last episode, and we can see that there were definite limitations to the Mayan ability to grow and prosper. The 7th and 8th centuries saw a resumption of prosperity for Mayan cities. Great rulers such as Pakal of Palenque instigated glorious building projects which have survived to this very day. Similar activity took place after the lifetime of Pakal at another city called Yashilan, where a great ruler called Yashin Balaam IV, anglicised as Bird Jaguar IV, inherited the prosperity of his father's reign and also continued great buildings at his city. However, as quickly as fortunes declined and then ascended, they would decline again. There is evidence of droughts hitting the area of the Maya once again in the late 8th century and multiple times throughout the 9th century and into the 10th century. No longer was it possible for the great Ahals who were subjugating the peoples to maintain their control over the populations as over farming in the face of difficulties provided the resource for today that would deny the resource for tomorrow. People would rise up against authority in a similar way to that described during the decline of Teotihuacan, described during episode 74. The lack of resource led to the revolt of subjects which in turn led to the instability of society. Unless the Mayans could change their fortunes then there was a risk of the collapse of civilization. There is firm evidence of violence and peasants rising up against rulers with the defacement of monuments. The lack of buildings and Steely have left us making a lot of educated guesses about the sequence of events from here on in. It does appear that sea trade started becoming more relied upon than land trade and this could point towards a realisation that there was little or no future for a prosperous existence in the rainforests. The peasants were evidently malnourished as demonstrated by skeletal remains and the tradesmen and artisans may have abandoned their homes choosing to migrate away in search of better fortune and this could explain the apparent movement of the centre of Mayan culture to the Yucatan Peninsula. It is very considerable and eerie to see how the cities of classic Maya seem to collapse like dominoes one after another during the 9th century inscriptions at Palenque continue until around the year 799 after this we see absolutely nothing else new while warfare ravaged mine lands elsewhere the residents subject to Tikal who didn't desert the city remained within the city away from the warfare but over farming brought inevitable famine and before long Tikal was on its knees with no more ceremonial activity. By the year 900, a new power emerged in Tikau, and the new power was the jungle that began to swallow the remains of the abandoned city. A very similar story can be told of Calakmul, the traditional rival of Palenque and of Tikal. Elites still remained at Calakmul, until the end of the 9th century and eventually the civilization there just became an isolated and insignificant population a shadow of the classic Mayan culture who once dominated these rainforests Mayan culture did not disappear it migrated the rainforest cities that are typical of the classic period were abandoned in the year 600, the Mayan city of Chichen Itza began to flourish. Its location was much further north in the Yucatan Peninsula and while Tikal and Palenque were being abandoned, Chichen Itza continued to prosper for centuries and well into the second millennium. Well, very interesting, and and that sort of rounds off uh, our tour of Mesoamerica. So for the for around the last four weeks, we've uh, we've toured around those lands of Mexico, southern Mexico, and and its neighbouring modern day countries, and and explored uh, what was going on in that area. Of rent. And then of course uh, we did also visit South America and and see what was going on in Peru. Um, in volume four. Um, we'll probably be widening our scope a little bit, but that's it for Volume Three. That's the end of Mesoamerica, and uh, we've really got nowhere else to go. Um, so we're now going to be looking forward to Volume Four, and uh, we'll be introducing other areas of the world. So I know, for example, there was there was activity and uh, you know things to say about the country of Japan during this period that we covered in Volume Three. Well. We'll sort of touch upon that more in Volume Four when we introduce Japan as a, as a major uh, historical uh, place of interest. Let's say, so so there'll be considerable attention paid to Japan in Volume Four. So so don't worry that we haven't covered it in this volume. Uh, it's uh, it's all part of the greater plan, as as we always say. But uh, yes, that all that remains for us to do in this volume is really to summarise the entire period. So, the period from around sort of seven hundred BCE through to six hundred, and, and the emergence of uh, medieval times, the rise of Islam, and uh, and all the all the stuff that comes with that sort of uh, middle period of of, uh, of world history. Um, so. Um, yeah, quite unbelievable that we've got here, isn't it? And uh, certainly the, the story of the mines is very interesting and leads us nicely into um, volume four Mesoamerica, the turn of the second millennium, and, and what was going on before the arrival of the Spanish and uh well look, if you if you're enjoying the podcast if you really like it and uh, and you want to support it and help it to become bigger and better then of course you can make monthly donations and you just simply go to the history of the world podcast.com website we have our own website if you go along there and click on the patreon link you can sign up to make a monthly donation and receive associated rewards we send you gifts in the post we give you opportunities to ask questions we can even allow you to commission your own podcast episode on the subject of your choice which is pretty cool we've got uh, we've certainly got one coming up um, during the interim period between volume three and volume four uh, on a very obscure subject to do with Icelandic history so um, I've, I've had a job and a half Gathering material for it, but um, but I'm still going to give it a go. You know, as a as a, a debt of gratitude to those who have made monthly contributions. When you do make a monthly contribution, you become a lifelong member of the history of the World Podcast Illuminati. As have three Q U one T U five and Karma Kitty, both now. Members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, thank you very, very much for helping to support uh, this wonderful project. I also really appreciate it when you write in, and um, we we got an email from uh, Kevin Whittington, who's put, uh, "Hi Chris, I'm writing this from God's Own County of Yorkshire." And I hope you are keeping well in these strange times I discovered your podcast a few weeks ago After listening to Mike Duncan's History of Rome And David Crowther's History of England I can honestly say that your work far surpasses both David and Mark's The content of each episode is well researched And is delivered in terms that make it easy for the layman to follow I must admit that I too listen uh, listen at 1.5 speed and have therefore caught up with the current episodes in a very short time. I am now faced with the wait for each new release. I listen on Spotify and cannot find a way of rating it, so I will set up an Apple podcast account so I can leave a five-star rating. I find it amusing that everyone focuses on your accent. The only issue I have is the recording you play at the end of each episode. I wasn't paying much attention to what was being said and thought it was advertising a metalworking podcast when I heard you say Hot welders." I realised it was just the difference in North-South pronunciation of Hot welders." Many thanks for all your hard work and dedication, Kevin. Uh, well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for making fun of the accent. And yes, I, I can understand. And, and in my natural tone, I don't realise I'm doing it. But yes, I suppose when I say hot welders, it does sound very much like hot welders to the untrained ear. Um, I, I try and pay particular attention. There is there's, there's a sort of a lazy uh, English pronunciation of the country of Ireland where we tend to call it Ireland as to rhyme with the very generic term for a, a landmass in the middle of the sea, an island. Um, so I try and make a conscious effort to say Ireland instead of island. And uh, I think, you know, we, we can get into lazy R's in our area of uh, England, you know, the, the R's in our, in our pronunciation are very lazy. Um, you don't tend to get that in the West Country so much, or even so much in Yorkshire, to be quite honest with you. You tend to sort of concentrate your efforts into pronouncing your R's there, which is probably a little bit more proper than than from where I come from. But interesting anyway. Can't believe you, you would say my, what my work surpasses Mike Duncan and David Crowther's. I, I think surely most people wouldn't agree with that unless you're unless you're a major fan of this podcast but a considerable compliment there I can't thank you enough that anyone would would ever say that so um I I've got such respect for the work of Mike Duncan and David Crowther like really really much so and certainly you know even David Crowther's like lengths of his um sort of his research are, are so considerable like just I can't imagine being compared to that, those guys but thank you so much indeed and, and very very kind message so we're we're fast approaching the end of volume three and and I'm sort of almost bored of hearing myself say I just can't believe it really I can't believe um that we that we've made it and uh I don't know why I can't believe it obviously I set out to do it but um really just when I look back at the amount of episodes that we that have been recorded it's uh it's quite a considerable thing we've done, and and now I look forward to volume four. Um, I believe you know we're going to be looking at eighty plus episodes in volume four to cover that properly. So um, we're going to have to do it all over again. It's quite, quite uh, a considerable project, isn't it? Looking at the history of the world. So, but um, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, and the stories are, are so entertaining that like you know to motivate um, myself to do it is. It's not really a problem. I just love history and and all the stories that come with it. It's very, very entertaining indeed. So looking forward to Volume 4 at this stage. It's quite an important week for the podcast, in actual fact. I'm, um, I'm heading off down to the Chalk Valley History Festival on Thursday and Friday of next week. Um, I hope to see one or two of you down there. Um, if you're down there, I don't know if anyone... He's planning a trip down there, but I'll be down there on the 24th and the 25th. I won't be there in any official capacity. I'll be just taking in the the festival, um, just like everyone else. So I'll be like a, a public visitor, and uh, and uh, it'll be my first time down there, so I can't wait to see what it's all about. And um, the, uh, the I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Thursday, the 24th, actually coincides with the third birthday of the history of the world podcast so it's quite a very significant week for us the third birthday of the podcast so uh, we started the podcast or the first episode was published on the 24th of June 2018 so here we are 3 years later and and uh, almost completed three volumes so very very important and significant week for the history of the world podcast and those of you who have been there with me right from the start um you know you 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 hold a very special place in in the heart of the podcast and um thank you so much for accompanying me on this long and um and entertaining journey so next week we'll be looking to start the summary of the entire ancient period. We'll be mentioning things that we've not spoken of before, so they're not to be missed, the summary episodes. Uh, we're really just sort of um, filling in some of the gaps and just uh, and taking a sweeping journey throughout the entire period. So um, a, real, uh, a real needed summary, in my opinion. These summary episodes are very important in terms of our comprehension of, of everything that's going on. So don't miss it, please. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Um, I haven't read out some reviews for a couple of weeks. It's gone a bit quiet on the reviews front. I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, but nonetheless, um, still uh, come along and do it. And obviously get involved in all the interaction as well, all the social media for the podcast as well is very much uh, alive and kicking and uh, and it's waiting for you to come in and get on board and, and become involved. The discussion forum, the Facebook page, even the unofficial Facebook page uh, created by Jenna Osborne is, is definitely one to be involved in if you like talking about history. So come along. It's all on the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Go to the interact section and get involved, get involved in talking history. Um, until next week, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week everyone and be good. Come to the history of the world and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media why not support the podcast by clicking the patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the history of the World podcast illuminati drop me a line at history of the at and let me know what you thought of this week's episode see you next time